this is quite a good one. Uh, if you're doing a lot of work, don't just use one surgical blade. Have several surgical blades ready because they blunt really, really quickly. Welcome to the Dental Implant Podcast with your host, Pav Kara, your source of knowledge for all things relating to dental implants. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something valuable. I hope. Hi again, everybody, and welcome back to the Dental Implant Podcast. Um, sorry it's been about two, three weeks since I've managed to do the previous show, uh, episode, whatever you want to call it. Uh, been a little bit busy. Apologies about that. So we're going to move on to the next episode today, okay? Um, I've had a couple of people uh, ask me who's who's the guy who does the intro, um, who does the voiceover. Uh, that is a Morgan Freeman impersonator, and he's pretty damn good, isn't he? So yeah, as you may know, I'm a very much a film fanatic, and uh, Shawshank Redemption is one of my favourite films of all time. Came across this uh, guy who does Morgan Freeman impressions, and I was like, "Oh, I've got to do it! It's going to sound absolutely fantastic." Okay. So, uh, what are we going to discuss today? We are going to discuss common surgical mistakes, and I'm going to keep looking in this direction because I've got my notes already, just to act as a prompt. Um, so, we're going to talk about common surgical mistakes. I'm hoping from today you pick up a few things. Um, if there's probably one tip that I can give you today, I mean, it's 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 all important. It's all important. But if there's one tip more than anything else that I can impart on you today is work on suturing technique, work on passive flap closure because that is critical and get decent sutures get, uh, and I'm going to come on to that in a moment. Okay, So what's the most common surgical mistakes? Let's, let's kind of like start at the beginning and work our way through what, what you might be doing surgically. Um, the, one of the first uh, common surgical mistakes is um, inappropriate preoperative medication. Um, I'm not a fan of dexamethasone. It actually impairs uh, healing. Uh, it interferes with the healing cascade, so I just don't use it. Um, and what I will tend to do is for my pre-op medications is, uh, depending on the amount of work that we're doing, is that I will give painkillers and I will give a two gram pen V. Um, now, what the data suggested is two grams uh, of uh, amoxicillin as a loading dose will reduce your risk of failure without significantly increasing risk of developing uh, resistance to antibiotics. Uh, PEN-V is a narrower spectrum antibiotic than what uh, penicillin is. So my pre-op regime is two grams of PEN-V. So that's the first thing, okay? Secondly, inadequate anesthesia. This happens, this happens a lot. I see people starting surgical procedures and ending up with patients are sensitive because they are treating it as if it was a restorative case and not a surgical case. Surgical anesthesia, you need, you need the patients to be really, really numb. Now, when I was uh, studying at Guy's, one of my professor's consultants, he did a, a very simple study where he got his colleagues, when they were doing inferior alveolar nerve blocks, um, where he'd ask half of his colleagues to give one cartridge and the other half to give a, uh, one and a half cartridges. And he found that, and bearing in mind these are experienced colleagues, is uh, wh what his data suggested is that when you give one cartridge, 65% of the time the patients go numb. 
when you give a cartridge and a half, then you know, in, in those instances, 95% of the time the patients go numb. So when I'm doing uh, surgical anesthesia in the lower arch, I actually don't use an inferior alveolar nerve block. Uh, I actually go higher. Um, uh, so I use an akinose type block um, and I, I will give a cartridge and a half and then the other half a cartridge, I will do infiltrations around where I'm working or hit the long buckle. Uh, similarly, when we're working in the upper arch is I generally tend to use blocks um, posterior superior alveolar uh, infraorbital you just need to make sure that the patients are completely numb before you start and I see a lot of the people that I mentor when I'm doing them is uh, it, when I see them give anesthesia I always turn around and say to them just give them a little bit more because the patient needs to be really numb so they're not getting nervous they're not getting twitchy when they're doing this next common surgical mistake <laughs> this is quite a good one uh, if you're doing a lot of work, don't just use one surgical blade. Have several surgical blades ready because they blunt really, really quickly. So there's a number of things that I say. Uh, I don't for, for my scalpel handles, I like the round handle because it, it just spins in your fingers a lot easier. I like 15C blades as my workhorse. I think the 15s are just far too big. Uh, 12 is like, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. Is it 12? I can't remember. The, the, the bigger version of the 15. Use a generally quite a small surgical blade is one getting at. See, so many numbers even I get confused. Um, the 15C works really nicely in my hand. Uh, the round handles where you can roll it in your fingers, I generally tend to find you get much more finesse when you're, um, uh, when you're making your incision as well. The other thing that I see a big mistake a lot of people make when they're doing surgery, you're not cutting a cake, you are making an incision. So the number of people that I see when they're making an incision, they're, they're doing it like they're cutting a cake. What you want to do is you want to go down to bone, make your incision. It needs to be a definitive incision. No cake cutting, no going backwards and forwards. It needs to go down to bone and across, nice and clean. So, and you'll find that that will just make your surgical site much cleaner, okay? Common surgical mistake number four, learn when to use split thickness flaps versus full thickness flaps. And you can transition from partial thickness into full thickness and back into partial thickness and all sorts of things, depending on what you want to do. Once you understand how to handle that tissue, it will actually, um, particularly in the aesthetic zone, when you can transition to, uh, uh, from full thickness to partial thickness, is uh, you can get some really nice results uh, and, and, and maintain papilla heights. Another issue that I have is, is a, a lot of people, I think I'm coming on to this as well, is when, when they graft and, uh, and they pull the flap, the flap over, is they don't do any remedial soft tissue work after that. You're going to land yourself in trouble there as well, okay? So uh, uh, common surgical mistake number four is only using full thickness flaps. You know, understand when to use uh, full thickness, when to use partial thickness, and how to switch between the two, okay? Um, common surgical mistake number five, flap elevation, okay? You need a sharp periosteal elevator. If it's not sharp, buy a new one or send it to be sharpened, okay? Once you've got it in with your blade and you've made that clean incision, you need to get underneath it and lift. It shouldn't be ripping and tearing at the soft tissue, okay? You will find your patient's heel significantly better when you are making that periosteal elevation and not slipping around all over the place. And again, a big tip I can give you there is make sure that your periosteal elevators are really, really nice and sharp. You can also have 
different types of flaps for different scenarios and situations. When I'm at EVO and we are doing a full arch, my flaps generally tend to be much higher, particularly into the palate, okay? The reason for that's quite simple. When, we, when it comes time to doing a mucoplasty, is if I hit the greater palatine artery or a clip and arteriole, it's way easier for me to tie off than what it is trying to elevate that flap even further, okay? You need good, good surgical vision in order to be able to see what you're doing really, really well, okay? Uh, I see sometimes people making tiny little flaps. That's not an issue in the right instance. And I generally recommend that if you're making small flaps, you actually should be a very experienced surgeon because then you know in your mind's eye, you know where, where the bone and everything is underneath, okay? Um, uh, and similarly, when we're raising the flap buckley, when I'm doing the full arches at Evo, I go up to the base of the nose, I release the, the lining of the base of the nose, I go nice and high, I wanna see the anterior fibers of the masseters, and uh, I wanna go around all the way around the back of the tuberosity as well. Visual access is really important because you can mess up really quickly and not even know it by, uh, uh, by having an inadequate flap. But think about your flap designs and make them accordingly. Okay, next one. Surgical speed. Now, th this is a bit of a misnomer, right? Yeah? Because the faster you are at surgery, I generally tend to find the less post-op mor morbidity patients have. And I generally tend to find that uh, the fewer complications I have as well because the patient's not been open for, for so long. But you can't do that until you start to have good experience. And this is something we've touched on before, okay? You need the experience to develop the muscle memory and you need a mentor on your shoulder showing you how to do it so that you can become more proficient at it, okay? The next surgical mistake I see a lot, particularly when I'm mentoring other people, is overheating the bone. You know, I ask my mentees, when was the last time you changed your burrs? I don't know. Should be keeping a log and a record of how often you use your, your burrs and they should be changed regularly. The more frequently you use the burrs, particularly the sharper burrs, your pilot burr, your two millimeter uh, twist burrs should be replaced very, very frequently indeed, okay? Um, so if you're using blunt burrs, you've got a very inefficient way of drilling. You're gonna increase the heat in the bone. There's data to, to support that as well. And the other thing that, that has an effect on bone overheating as well is using the drills too quickly in succession. Okay, people go in with their pilot, pick up the two millimeter, go in really quickly with the two millimeter, switch to the three millimeter, go in with the three millimeter, and you're not allowing the bone to call back to normal physiologic levels. So a couple of tips that I can give you there is firstly use chilled saline uh, as, your, as your irrigant. Um, no, you do not need internally irrigated burrs. The data suggests that within half a second or a second of using these internally irrigated burrs, they're completely clogged and they're useless anyway. Chilled saline works really well. Um, the other thing that works just completely is 60 seconds in between burrs. Now, if I've got a patient where uh, they've got really tough bone, D1, D2, after I've done my pilot, I will then switch to another site and start preparing that. And I will make sure 60 seconds has gone by before I put the next burr into that initial osteotomy site again. Waiting 60 seconds will is allow a complete reset and the bone to turn to normal uh, physiologic levels. Cold saline, 
And I know what a lot of people do. They'll even stick the saline in the freezer and take it out an hour before they're actually doing their procedure. Sharp burrs and waiting 60 seconds in between burrs, okay? Soft tissue management, yeah. I see a lot of people doing grafts and they're not attaining uh, passive closure, okay? Um, now, when you get taught grafting, what you need to understand is different grafting techniques will work really, really nicely. Now, one thing you'll notice about all the people who have success in grafting is because they're good surgeons, not necessarily the technique, okay? One of the keys that you'll find, and this is true of any grafting technique that you'll do, is you want to have passive closure. If you do not have passive closure, game over, okay? Burkhart and Lang showed that any tension in the flap um, uh, causes soft tissue ischemia. Uh, one way around that is to use um, 6O sutures. I, I like to use 6O serolon because what happens with uh, 6O, if you pull it too tight, it snaps. That means that your flap design is wrong. Okay, particularly when I'm doing uh, single teeth, it's 6O serolon is my go-to. Is if you can't close a flap with 6O, it's not passive. It's not passive. What people are doing is they're using 4O, pulling it really tight, strangulating the blood supply. Okay, if you want to start to improve your success rates, switch to, to 6O. And I, as I said, I use uh, 6O Cerulon. Another issue that I, uh, that I see when it comes to soft tissue work is once people have done a, a big graft, they've done their periosteal release and they've pulled the soft tissue over and gotten really nice passive closure, you've then moved your keratinized and your mobile mucosa. You then have to do a secondary procedure of a vestibuloplasty to move that mobile mucosa back down to where it should be. And you will allow the keratinized tissue to granulate in. I was taught this on Howie Gluckman's soft tissue course in South Africa, absolutely superb course. But you, if, if you're doing a big graft and you're getting a periosteal release and pulling it over, you've got to move it back once it's healed. It's that simple. No, no, no two ways about it. No two ways about it, okay? Um, what's the next... Uh, surgical mistake I commonly see. Um, only using one grafting technique. There are different grafting techniques which have different indications. I'm not saying do them all. What I am saying is try to get proficient at two to three of them uh, because you need a number of different techniques up your sleeve. Uh, what are the key components of grafting there? Graft immobilization and passive flap closure. You can get both of those two halfway one before you even consider what graft material you're actually going to put in there. The next issue I see a lot of problems with is post-operative care. I see a lot of people giving corsidal post-op. I, I, I just don't like it. Why? Because it interferes with healing, it interferes with fibroblast development, and there are some people who are allergic to it. And if you've got an open surgical site, you're giving the patient corsidal, personally, I think you're asking for problems. I know other people where they will completely put um, surgical masks over the areas or, 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 or surgical material uh, like Copac. Again, I'm not a fan of doing that. What I say to my patients is there's two things that are going to cause problems, not keeping the site clean and scrubbing it too hard. So you've got to find this really happy medium. So the way that I get around it is I generally get my patients to buy a baby toothbrush that's really super soft. And I say to them, all you need is a couple of very gentle wipes on the surface. You're not, you're not scrubbing it clean. And just that removal of plaque will work wonders. The last one I want to get onto, and I'm going to do, I might end up doing a number of podcasts on this because it's, it's so important, 
Um, and again, it's, it's not so much intraoperative uh, surgical issues. Sorry, I'm just looking at my notes again. Um, this is systemic issues, systemic health of the patient, what's going on systemically. It's, it's grossly overlooked. Um, what I would like for you guys to understand is that if a patient is overweight, if they're uh, cardiovascularly at risk, if they're not working out, uh, if they are, if their cholesterol's high, if they're, uh, if they are on antidepressants, think about the number of people on antidepressants. Yeah? Um, if their diet's not good, if their gut bacteria is not good, if they're, uh, oh god, if their vitamin D's low, if they, if they're psychologically stressed, the list is just endless. Generally, what I tend to find is it's not just one or two things. It tends to be, you know. A little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. And it, they all start to add up to play an overall important role. So remember to look at the systemic health of your patients. Now, the issue that I have with a lot of data with regards to uh, dental implants, particularly studies, is you can either have a high degree of control. So you're controlling all of those things. Like, so you've got, you've got people in who... They don't have high cholesterol, their vitamin D is normal, they're not psychologically stressed, uh, they're working out, um, they're not taking omeprazole, they're not taking SSRIs. Um, and then you say, okay, well, we're going to change one thing and then we're going to see what happens. The problem that you have doing that is how many patients are you going to find? And the answer is very, very few. So your sample size is incredibly low, okay, uh, which means that you can only extrapolate the data with caution. Okay, so the other side of the coin is you allow a lot more inclusion criteria, but then the quality of your data suffers. What does that mean? It means you can extrapolate your data with caution. Okay, so this is the thing that I have with dental implant studies, and I, I see this a lot, uh, where people turn around and say, oh, you know, we studied this, and this plus this equals this. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what, there's about 15 factors you haven't controlled. So how do you know exactly what's going on? So just be aware of that when you're critically appraising papers. And I've spoken about this before. Do not just read abstracts. It's not worth it. So um, I hope that's been uh, useful for you guys. Um, and as I said, it's um, uh, particularly that last one, you know, any, uh, any evidence that you see with regards to uh, papers, always take it with a pinch of salt because either you, you can have high quality data but a very low sample size, or a very big sample size, but very low quality data. You can't have both. It's extremely difficult to do. Um, yeah, as I said, it's no cake cutting, nice clean incision, keep swapping your blades over, change your suturing techniques, look after the soft tissue, do the soft tissue closures properly, replace the soft tissue where it should be replaced. Now, all of these things add up to, to, to a lot of things. Um, so I hope that's been useful for you. These are just some of the things that I could think of off the top of my head uh, with regards to uh, common surgical mistakes. So uh, I'll be picking up again with another uh, podcast very soon and I'll speak to you guys later. Please invite your friends to listen to this. Obviously, if they're implant surgeons or they place dental implants, you know, if, <laughs> you know, if they're car salesmen, then it's not going to be much interest to them. But it may be. Hey, you never know. You never know. Uh, thanks, you, uh, you guys, for tuning in. It means the world to me. I'll speak to you later. Bye.